This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say, dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts, in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my mom, Bobby Comporto, who is not here for the intro, but is sending her very best, and you will hear from her in just moments in our episode. Um, today, we are welcoming journalist and author Tessa Miller. Uh, Tessa has just released the incredible book. Uh, Bobby and I were lucky enough to get to read it before chatting with Tessa, uh, and it's called What Doesn't Kill You? A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt. Um, Tessa's book is available now wherever you get books, and uh, definitely if you can, please try to buy it from a local bookstore, uh, a small business in general needs so much support. Uh, nowadays. Tessa joins us to talk um, about the loss of her father to alcoholism and her diagnosis and journey with Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disease um, which affects the bowels. And it's a really tough thing. And Tessa has dealt with it in a really beautiful way. And it was wonderful to hear about, um, I don't know, just the highs and lows of how she's been able to cope with this through the years. Um, we're so incredibly lucky to talk with her. And I know it meant uh, something very special to Bobby because as Bobby will mention in the episode, she has suffered with ulcerative colitis for decades. And, um, you know, so I think they were really able to connect on that and what it's like to, you know, live with chronic illness. Um, so yes, please enjoy this episode. And we hope that everyone is doing well out there. Uh, winter, you know, it's it's winter. It's certainly winter. I don't know where you, you guys are listening from, if it's someplace cold or someplace warm, but in New York, it's definitely that middle of winter feeling in what has already been a very challenging 12 months. And uh, so we are thinking of you out there. Please hang in there. Please, you know, write to us and connect with us. We'd love to hear from you. And um, if you have a moment, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really helps other folks be able to check out our podcast, which is, you know, the goal. We want to build as many, uh, you know, build the show to reach as many listeners as we can because we know that hearing these stories can be really helpful. And um, we really hope that you all connect with this story and with Tessa. And she's a wonderful person. And it was a wonderful talk. So thank you so much to Tessa. And thank you to all of you. Take care of yourselves and each other. Okay, bye.
Okay, so hello. We are joined today by a wonderful guest, Tessa Miller. Tessa is a health and science journalist and is about to release a book called What Doesn't Kill You, A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt, which will be coming out on February 2nd of this year. Tessa, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. So Tessa, we were just chatting before the show and I was looking behind you because we're doing this on video and noticing that you're in front of a fireplace and surrounded by a cute dog that you just said is warming its butt <laughs> on the fireplace and it looks so nice and cozy. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I try to make it uh, a cozy little background for stuff that's on video. I think I've been influenced by all these like um, these Room Raider Twitter accounts. Uh-huh. For, for it's like journalists go on TV and then all these, all these Twitter accounts are like eight out of 10 right. needs more coziness or like <laughs> se- seven out of 10, not enough books. And so now I'm like, well, I have this fireplace. I'm going to put it behind me. That's awesome. Well, it looks amazing. I give it personally a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Well, it's also, um, it's also out of necessity because it is absolutely freezing in here oh, wow. unless you're sitting right in front of the fireplace. So it's also s- selfish for me <laughs> to be to be warm during this conversation. It's really so. nice. Well, what have you been like it's, now that you're kind of in a country, you're in the country, you're by a fireplace, like what kind of things have you been um, cooking or making recently? Um, well, I recently bit the bullet and I bought a year of... New York Times cooking. Awesome. Access. Um, I, it's so funny because I'm a journalist and I, I'm happy to pay for, for journalism and I pay for the New York Times, but I just kept putting off New York Times cooking. And so I would like, I would only be able to see like the picture and then like maybe the first couple ingredients <laughs> and then the rest. The rest, I was just like, maybe it, maybe it's broccoli, maybe it's green beans. I don't know. And that's so how you. Finally... That's how you ended up with your famous cheesecake that's filled with chili on the inside. Yeah. Exactly, my famous broccoli cheesecake. Um, so I finally signed up. I've been uh, just like kind of going crazy at night. It's kind of like how I soothe myself before bed. I like scroll through and save recipes and think about how I can adapt them for um, how I have to eat because as we'll get into later, I have Crohn's disease, but I also have celiac, which means that I I can't eat um, gluten, which is in wheat and barley and rye, which is in a lot of my favorite foods. And so I have to figure out ways to change that. Um, but really from, I would say October until March, I'm just constantly making soups and stews and, uh, my husband and I have been trying to perfect our gluten-free bread, which is difficult because (laughs) gluten is a key for bread. It is very important <laughs> in the bread process. <laughs> yeah. So we've been trying to like try different yeasts and try different gluten-free flour mixes and all this stuff. And he actually had a good one 
the other day, um, but we haven't been able to recreate it. We, we really need to start writing down what, what it is that we're putting in there. <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of comfort foods. It's been a lot of um, just because we're not we're not going to the market as much because of COVID. Um, we're really trying to not waste the stuff that we have. Yeah. Um, so with soup and stew and that kind of stuff, I mean, that's a really good way to use like some crusty carrots that you kind of forgot about. And maybe if you were going to the grocery store the next day, you would buy new ones. Totally. But this like encourages us to not be wasteful. And that's that's something I've been proud of throughout the last year is that I think I've really thought more about how much food I'm often wasting. Yeah, well, it is. And, it's and true. how yeah. I can. I, yeah. And how I can stop doing that. Yeah, I think, you know, we all there's been so much, you know, everyone talks about how awful the last year has been and that's that's true but the some of the like little wins have definitely been in you know food preparation and learning about how to you know be more resourceful and and recognizing like how much we might waste you know I think it's really being mindful in so many different ways right but it it applies to cooking too and, and eating yeah um yeah that's that's been a big that's been a big part of it I've also just been going back to a lot of like food that I ate as a child that I would make with my mom. Like what? Um, well, we, we were, I think I told you this in sort of like our pre-interview thing, but like I grew up on government assistance. So we, uh, relied on food stamps. And so a lot of the food that we made was like bulk food that you could eat for a week so a lot of simple like rice and beans and and um even like midwestern casseroles that I've sort of adapted to my more grown-up palate now um lots of like roasted chickens and and stuff like that that um that my mom used to make um when I was a kid so and I think that's also like tapping into a need for comfort during the pandemic too is like totally. I'm I have this need for nostalgia and I haven't seen my family in more than a year so I'm also thinking about like what would we be eating together if we were if we were together and um yeah, I've just spent I spent a lot of my life in the kitchen with my mom. Um, she comes from a family of women who also spent a lot of time in the kitchen, and they they um, my mom grew up on a farm in very rural Illinois. They had a giant Irish Catholic family. And to, f to feed that many kids, they had gardens, um, they had livestock, they would hunt. Um, when, th when things got really bleak, sometimes they would eat squirrels. And um, so she really like taught me how to use whatever we've got. Yeah. Be resourceful, and, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's yeah. interesting. In our pre-interview, you were mentioning that, you know, what you're offering a different side of it now, which is incredible. I think uh, what you were kind of touching on when we spoke before this was like how the growing up on government assistance 
created yeah. a part of you feeling uncomfortable about food in relation to going to the totally. grocery store and feeling like there's a microscope on totally. you. But it's it's yeah. interesting to see the duality in that of how like it it uh, kind of brings like an appreciation for food in yeah. a different way and yeah. for like real yeah. true like kind of historically like peasant cooking and and living off the land and homesteading. And then the opposite is that we don't, I guess like part of it is that we don't really honor that tradition so much in our modern society, which is very unfortunate. We're starting to, and I think one of the things that the pandemic has brought around in terms of food is honoring kind of the homesteading lifestyle and living off the land and 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 reusing things and repurposing things. But as a kid growing up in, you grew up in the nineties, right? Like, I don't think that I was, bo- that wasn't popular, at least for a kid it wasn't yeah. it wasn't popular at all um there definitely was a lot of shame around um you know pulling out your your food stamp card at the at the checkout and having the people behind you judge you whether they really were or not when you're a little kid like you're just thinking that they're looking at you and that they're placing judgments on what kind of person you must be and what kind of what kind of mother you must have and and all of this this stuff and then something kind of shifted or when like Anthony Bourdain was on TV and he started making all this peasant food really popular and cool and I was like wait this is like the stuff that I ate when we were dirt poor and like now now it's on these like fine dining menus and and um yeah it was a strange uh trajectory to watch as I grew up provincial Um, foods you know of whatever yeah 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 totally interesting Mm -hmm. so did you did so the aspects of your growing up was there what led to the fact that um you were on food stamps is that something that that might help us understand yeah. more about your history? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so my dad was an academic. Um, early in his career, he was a documentary filmmaker, um, and most of his films uh, were made in the Caribbean. Um, he created films about late 1970s reggae music and uh, Rastafari culture. Um, He also worked really closely with the prime minister of Grenada in the late 1970s to build their public school system. Um, But the prime minister was executed in a coup in 1983 right around the time my older sister was born. So my my mom and dad came back to the States right around that time because it was getting risky to be there if you had been working with that administration. So um, he came back to the States and from there he started working um, mostly in community colleges and state colleges, um, worked his way up to deanship, Um, but at the same time he was excelling sort of in this academic career. He was also, um, developing a severe addiction to alcohol. And eventually those two things could not coexist (laughs) anymore. You can't be like for a while he was 
a quote unquote functioning alcoholic. Um, I don't know how I feel about that phrase, but he, he certainly was one for a while. Um, and then he wasn't and he couldn't keep a job. Um, we lost our house. We lost our cars. We, we, we really lost everything. Um, and because of his addiction, I lived with my mom full time when they split up when, when I was about 12. And, um, my mom, my mom worked, but she didn't have a college degree. And so the, she couldn't move up any higher than she already was. She was working for a big um, uh, insurance company, but there was only so high she could go. And and around that same time, um, my older sister got pregnant. She was 20 years old. She moved in with us into our little two bedroom, $500 a month apartment. Um, and then the baby came, my niece Zoe. <laughs> And we were all kind of cramped in there. And my mom was making maybe 700 bucks a week or something like that, um, which was just not enough to support a family of, of that size. Um, so we, that's how we ended up on government assistance. And, and thank God, thank God for it because um, we really survived off of that. I mean, I got through, I got through high school on food stamps and was valedictorian. That's amazing. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if, um, yeah, I, I, I ate a lot of, uh, Velveeta cheese and, uh, bagged cereal because when you're on food stamps, they don't let you buy box, boxed cereal. You have to buy bagged cereal. Um, and it, 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 it paid for, um, my niece's, uh, um, formula when my sister, when my sister went back to school, which formula is just ungodly expensive. I mean, it's like 40, 50 bucks and, um, you know, they keep it locked up in the grocery store because people are always trying to steal it because it's so inaccessible for people who need it wow. so you know I said earlier um, when you said that you're valedictorian and like you know I was like that's incredible and it is incredible but I think it's really important to just remind people that like you're like it's just a it's a great reminder that your income level and your uh like how much money you grow up with in your family and what you eat like that doesn't correlate to your drive and your will and your smarts. And I think like we societally are taught that it does and that you have to be from some kind of like wealthy family or have, you know, and go to prep, and, go to prep school. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is on the other side of it is that like those things do help people be able to succeed. You know what I mean? Being able to eat. Pro properly and make sure you know what I mean like there's food on the table like it is difficult to not do to not have like maybe the proper like amount of nourishment or have like proper housing and still have enough energy to get to school so I don't want to diminish the fact yeah, that that's absolutely. also real right right but absolutely. like yeah. but at the same time realizing that we it's good to normalize the fact that like 
brilliance and fortitude and drive like are in people regardless of how we view them societally you know what I mean yeah and I'm I I just think that all of those programs should be so um well destigmatized for one and also just expanded and improved because um I don't know if things would have turned out the same for me if I had been hungry all the time or, you know, if I if I hadn't have had access to it's not like you get the best food when you're on food stamps, but um but you get food. You're at least yeah, yeah and that's exactly. important. Yeah. But it makes your memories that you talked about of your mom in the kitchen even that much more poignant. You know, that we can make something out of whatever there is and we can bring joy into the cooking of food, whatever we have. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about it sometimes, like looking back on it now, we were like, we did pretty good with <laughs> that government, with that government cheese. Yeah. Like we made some stuff taste pretty good. And I still use some of that stuff that she taught me in the kitchen then now, you know, yeah, so. That's great. And, and also the other part of your story, you know, we, we, we can't, um, you know, um, underestimate how powerful that is to have a watch your father decline with that disease. That must have been so hard and affected um, so many things of practical life, you know, security and predictability and all the things that we count on in a family. And that's such a severe disease. And it sounds like he had such a severe case. He did. And it was, it was, um, it was just such a, it was so inescapable in our home. Like just everything in my childhood home revolved around like predicting dad's behavior and getting in front of it. Um, and you know, my, my mom felt like she needed to protect my older sister because my dad would often go after her because she was a teenager and he took out a lot of his anger on her. And then I felt like I really needed to protect mom. Um, And so it was just everything was like just predicting and reacting, you know, for, for many, many years of my childhood. And I still carried that into, into my twenties too, with, with choosing choosing partners who were very similar to my dad in that way, where it was like I had to get in front of their aggression. Right. Yeah. Um, reliving the, and, reliving it. And so, I mean, we try yeah. to relive those things. So we can ultimately, you know, in our minds, we think if I can relive this, I could change what happened in the past. It's a yeah, hard lesson to learn. I think that, yeah. And I wrote about that in the book, like, um, maybe these relationships that I got into in adulthood would have felt bad or I would have left much earlier had I not grown up in a house where this sort of behavior was just extremely normal. You know, it was like, it was, it was what I was used to. And when you grow up in a house like that, you think that every house is like that. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't true at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, but yeah, I also, I also wrote about in the book too, where I, I felt like, um, after my dad died that I did need to punish myself through, you know, choosing, 
choosing abusive partners or whatever it may be. Um, I like to think of the optimistic view that we do this, we repeat these patterns so that we eventually can heal them. And that's what I'd like to think happens. You know, it doesn't always work that way. But so, so you mentioned that your dad passed at some point in your younger years. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it was uh, 2008, December 9th, 2008. Um, I was a junior in college and I had just finished my last uh, exam before winter break. And I was working part-time at um, a hair salon when I wasn't in class because I needed extra money and um, I was working late that night and my sister was calling my cell phone and she said like, I haven't been able to get in touch with dad for a few days. Have you heard from him? And I was like, no. And it wasn't that scary at first because like when you have an addict parent, um, they go MIA all the time. Like dad, he would, he would be missing for days at a time in my childhood. He wouldn't call me for months on end. And then I'd get an email from him saying like, I'm alive basically. (laughs) Um, so I wasn't really, uh, afraid in that moment, but then my sister just said that she had a bad feeling and so she was gonna call the police to do a wellness check on him. Um, and they went to his apartment to do a wellness check and then my sister's phone rang and it said, dad calling. And she was like, oh, thank God. But when she um, answered the phone, it was the coroner calling from, from his house. So he, um, about two weeks prior to his death, he went to the hospital. He hated hospitals. Like the, the man didn't, he, he never went to the doctor. He wouldn't go to the dentist. He just hated it all. Um, but he had become very jaundice. His skin and eyes were really yellow. He was having some memory problems. And so we really told him like, you need to go get checked out. And they said, your liver is 90% shot, um, but you're an alcoholic and you're not gonna be high on a transplant list. Like, so you've, you've probably got you know, a couple weeks to live. And I don't think we really took it seriously at first when they said he only had two weeks to live. I was just like, yeah, they're saying that, but like, he'll figure something out and he'll, <laughs> and he'll make it. And, and he was like researching all of this, like, you know, liver regeneration supplements and all this stuff. And Um, we had just had so many scares with him over the years that I was like, there's no way this is going to be the one. Um, I can relate to that feeling personally. Yeah. 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 And then really two weeks, almost to the, to the day, um, she, my sister called me. I was walking home to my apartment in Chicago in the middle of a Chicago winter. It was very cold and very snowy and very dark. And she said, are you home? And I just knew that that meant, are you home and are you sitting down? Because I need to tell you that dad is dead. Um, 
and it was so it was such a bizarre feeling because it was like I had prepared myself for this moment my entire life really from childhood I mean my sister and I as children used to have conversations about dad's gonna die and we need to be ready for it. With so much fear, I imagine, all yeah. the way along. Yeah. But like, no matter how much you anticipate it, it never feels the same. It's not no, the same. No, that's right. That's right. Um, I think it was like a protective mechanism where it was like, if we keep telling ourselves that this is going to happen, it will hurt less when it does. Yeah. And that just wasn't the case at all. It was just, it was just still absolutely devastating. I mean, I was relieved in a way because... Um, I think anyone who has loved someone with an addiction knows the feeling of relief when you don't have to worry all the time about where they are, if they're dead this time, if they're missing, if they're using, there's just all these things. I mean, I was just worried about my dad for my entire life. Um, and, and so there was this relief, but then with the relief Guilt. Of course, of course. That's so complicated, and you know, my dad had struggled with uh, cancer for like ten years, and before that, just like unhealthy. I don't know. I mean, on some level, I can relate to this feeling of it, you know, preparing yourself for it. But then, yeah, that guilt that comes along, you're like, what the fuck? Like, I was like thinking about this happening, and part of me wanted it to happen for my own, and then you feel guilt. But like, I think it's also very important to like normalize that feeling is that like it's okay to be like this is way too much and that like I'm losing my own life to this in some sense and that literally the only way that this pain for me can be alleviated is if this person is dead and that is a terrible reality as it's a reality though you know but you're 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 really right and 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 by the time that my dad I mean for for several years before he died he just was not, he, he was barely alive. You know what I mean? Like he, when, when I was growing up, he was like, he was such a genius and he was so, um, he was so brilliant and just all of that stuff was just so dim by the time that he passed away and he, was just I mean it's cliche but like just this shell of a of a human and 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 there wasn't going to be any coming back from that um because his physical health was so depleted by that point there wasn't going to be any recovery and so he would have been living just a not very happy or comfortable life um, People don't always if, realize the impact of alcoholism, you know, on the body. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I wrote, I wrote about that in the book too. Like, um, you know, after he died, my sister and I went to his apartment, and there was, you know, a heating pad on the couch, um, tissues strewn about everywhere. There was like bodily fluids on the carpet, like that he, he was just very sick in that apartment. Um, 
when we got on his computer, there was a lot of Google searches of like, um, is liver failure reversible and uh, live like liver failure, like how to how to handle the bloating from liver failure. It's dying from cirrhosis is a very painful and um, yeah, it's a terrible death. Yes, That's it all. really that, is. That, it just, it really is a terrible death. You wrote in your book, um, it said, I still, I miss something about those months of wild grief. Mm, yeah, Unreachably sad and inconsolable. I was in such a heightened state that some days it felt like I could reach across the ether and grab dad's hand. My grief was consuming, drowning out sounds and making my world because I created my own little spinning planet to mourn in seem separate from the greater one. Sounds like you really were experiencing, as you say, wild grief. Yeah. I'm sure it, it was it, the history it, of trauma. It's not just the death, but it's, we grieve when we grieve a parent, we grieve our whole lives, really. Yeah. Also, and I I wonder if there's any of the, like, the letting go of the, of the trauma, right? Of that person who's brought this, like, really hectic energy to your life. Also, I know you really loved him, but, like, you know, bringing this. But I was also scared of him, yeah. too. And so, like, the uh, yeah. release of and that, I can imagine, must have been. Yeah. I, I loved when you said yeah. wild grief, too. That's something I underlined here in my notes. And uh, can you just, yeah, can you talk about that feeling? Because I think that a lot of people yeah. kind of have that, and it's such a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, it was just such a, it it was an emotional experience, but it was also a truly physical experience. I mean, I just felt like I had on a, it was like being underwater or something or like have, having on a, a diving helmet where I couldn't hear anything else outside of, of what was in my head. And I think it gets at that idea of, of what Joan Didion wrote about with the year of magical thinking, where it's like, you truly believe that they could just walk by you on the street or that your phone, your phone will ring and it will be them. And I was having all these dreams where like his car would pull up and I would run outside and I would be like, where have you been? That he was just somewhere that I didn't know where he was. Um, and I was just like, I was in some place that was just unreachable to, to my mom or to anyone who wasn't in that with me. I mean, the closest person was my sister because she was also experiencing it. Um, but yeah, I also just like, I went through this phase where I thought, um, okay, I need to become an alcoholic. I need to drink myself to death. And that's the only way that I'm ever going to understand this man who was my dad. There was like just, it was so irrational. But at the time, it just felt like that, thinking about that gave me comfort at the time. Because I was I'm like... I'm curious, sorry to interrupt you, but like how since then have you found ways to actually understand him without drinking yourself to death? Yeah, well, I don't drink at all. <laughs> um, I, I don't drink at all, partly because um, of the way that he died. Um, I, I find comfort now in um, like just thinking about the really 
beautiful, bright parts of who he was. And a lot of those existed before I was even born. I never got to know them, but I've gone through like his old letters and I've read like some of his academic writing and, and gone through his, his photographs because he was a, a documentary filmmaker, but he was also just a prolific ph photographer. Um, and I also found a trove of love letters between him and his mom, him and uh, my mom, which was weird because like I never, I don't have any of my own memories of them mm. being in love. Yeah, right, like, exactly. Their marriage was already very cold and then eventually violent by the time I was a child. So um, I found a bunch of his teenage poetry and... Um, so I find, I find comfort now in like imagining a better future for him. I think, um, it, it makes me sad to, to think about that he didn't get to have that future, but I feel like those parts of him are in me and they're in my sister and they're in my niece and my nephews. And, um, I try to honor, I try to honor those really beautiful parts of him while also, um, still allowing myself to be angry. Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's this, uh, this interesting thing when you're talking about like your initial reaction was wanting to drink yourself to death, right? Which is to mm -hmm. like self-harm yeah. rather than like what the feeling you have now is like melancholy. I'm assuming sometimes depression, sadness, like, you know, the, in the instinct to what drink yourself to death or hurt yourself or whatever, have this like really like, mm, fiery response to to towards yourself about that is like you know not I think being ready yet to be able to sit with what we have to a lot of times in grief is the reality that like someone once said to me like when they lost their dad they're like they would think all the time are you still dead you know what I mean like how could you still be dead aren't you done being dead yet and I think like facing the reality that that person is still dead and they always will be and there's nothing we can do to like harm ourselves or the world or or anything else that will ever bring them back and sitting with that like infinite unchangeable like melancholy the pain you know like it's just it sucks it's something we don't want to face we want to think that there's things we can do and there are steps we can take to like deal with it and cope and it seems like you've definitely done that but like you know I think at the end of the day the reality that like it just sits in this place sometimes that will kind of always be there that's hard to just be like accept I have a comment about that too which is that I, I you know the internalization and the externalization so sometimes those feelings are so strong as you say when we sit with them but they literally can't stay inside. They have to have a way to express themselves. And whether it's in talking or writing music or screaming or something, because it's a very powerful thing. Internalization is what we do, and it, it can eat up our body. It can eat up our spirit. You know, it can paralyze us. So is that kind of what happened with you? Tell us more about how that grief, Yeah. what happened yeah. after I that. Yeah, I mean, I internalized the grief massively. I mean, it took me a long time to even, because I came home for, for, for winter break. Um, and when I went back, 
I didn't even tell anyone that he had died. I just squashed it. I just buried it somewhere. And that's really how I how I had coped in childhood with a lot of stuff too. So it's not, it wasn't any weird thing that I was doing. It was just like, if I pretend that everything's fine, then everything is fine. And if, and if, and if no one, if I don't tell anyone that my dad is dead, then maybe he's not really dead. Shame shame and magical thinking, right? Exactly. It was a perfect combination of the two. And also I knew that when, if I told people that he died, they were going to ask how he died. And he died on the toilet from liver failure due to alcoholism. And that wasn't something I wanted to tell people. And that's also not something that many people know how to react to. Um, And sometimes I would go over in my brain, like, okay, if somebody asks me how he died, like, what if I just say that he killed himself? Like, would that be better? Or what if I just say, like, he just got sick and died? Like, I would just go over and over all these things that, like, I could make up instead of of the truth. What Um, helped you be able to tell the truth? Like, when did you come to a place and why were you able to actually be able to be upfront about um, it? I think when I got sick, when I got sick myself, like when I was diagnosed with, with Crohn's just a couple years after he died, I started writing about my own chronic illness and, and sharing that more widely. Um, and I started to think about my dad as being chronically ill as well, you know, because he ha- he had a disease too. It just looked a lot different than mine. And I think when I started to let go of some of the shame of my illness and of my childhood and of all of these things that I'd just been been trying to keep secret for so long, um, then I was able to, to talk about it more openly. And it was, it was one of those things where I was so afraid of the response that I would get when I started to talk about it. And then I got so many emails and notes and stuff from people who, you know, had similar experiences, not only with their own chronic illnesses, but with their own, um, parents who also struggled and sometimes died from alcohol and drugs yeah. so it's like you opened the vault you know and yeah. it yeah, opened up and I found a found a community yeah that really helps yeah so can you talk to us a bit Tessa about your you know di- take us through like you know your diagnosis and your experience in living with Crohn's which is sure. a really difficult and, and also if I can add one other thing I'm also curious at, at this uh, juncture about grieving post-traumatic stress and chronic illness. So if you could tie all that in, tell us more about it. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Um, Well, let's start with maybe the grieving of a self, um, which is something that I write a lot about in the book. Um, And I kind of talk about the difference between what grieving my dad was like versus what grieving was like for me after I got sick. Um, because like I said, when my dad died, I was just unreachably sad, just inconsolable. I just, 
I, I, I didn't think that I could ever move on from that sadness. Um, when I was diagnosed with Crohn's, um, I was grieving, but that grief was just absolute rage. Like I was just so angry that this was happening to me. I was angry that I had this thing now that I was always going to have that I didn't really understand that other people didn't really understand. Um, I was just furious and I didn't, I didn't recognize that as grief because my only other grieving experience had been sadness, numbness, disconnection from reality. This was just absolute rage. You know, some of our listeners may not know what Crohn's disease is. Could you tell us? Sure. Yeah. So Crohn's disease is, um, it's an incurable immune disease. Um, it triggers your immune system to attack your digestive system. So for some reason, there's some combination of genetics and environment and something clicks in your immune system and it decides that your digestive system isn't supposed to be in your body anymore. And it basically tries to expel it from your body. Um, in a piece that I wrote for the New York Times, I described it as uh, the birth of my intestines through my butthole. Oh my God, <laughs> yeah, that's a... I'm sorry that that's no, not it's, a very it's a great way to, to describe it because it really helps like people understand what it must feel like. Yeah. What the suffering um, is it, about, yeah. yeah. But it causes um, uh, ulceration and bleeding through your digestive tract. Um, it causes uh, a lot of scar tissue, um, narrowing of your intestines, blockages, um, fissures, abscesses. It's just, it's a pretty gnarly disease. Um, and a lot of people who have Crohn's disease have to get surgeries and they end up um, with ostomies. So they have the, the bag where they dispel waste um, towards the front instead of out of the back. Um, so it's, it can be debilitating. I mean, luckily for me, I found um, an immune suppressant biologic medication that keeps me um, pretty uh, stable. But for many, right, many right years... Now, you mean right now, that's what you have? You're taking yeah. the biologic? Uh, yeah, ev every six weeks, yeah. Mm -hmm. I go to the infusion center at NYU Langone and do a two-hour infusion, and it's worked really well for me. But um, not everyone is so lucky. You know, it is it is the same disease, but every patient is very different and can respond really differently to, to medications. And some people fail every, every uh, option and end up with, with extensive surgeries and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, yeah, and then on top of that, I also have uh, celiac disease, which is um, an immune response in the small intestine to gluten. So that one is more manageable for me just because it was a dietary change. Um, not saying that cutting gluten out of your diet is easy. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm years enough out of it now that um, I've gotten better at it, but I used to just make myself sick all the time because I just didn't really know what I could eat or yeah. where it was hiding or whatever. So, um, 
you know, in reading yeah. your book, I know that there were years and years of unbelievable um, suffering and that you talked about fecal transplants and all kinds of unbelievable suffering that you went through. Yeah. Um, I ended up getting a bacterial infection um, called C. diff. Um, and I got it in the hospital. It's, it's common in hospitals. Um, it's kind of in that same group as like MRSA and other hospital born infections. So I got C. diff and, um, I wasn't responding to any of the treatment. And so I, um, ended up getting a fecal transplant in 2013. And then when I got C. diff again in 2015, I had to get two more fecal transplants as well. Um, so rough. That's so rough. Yeah, your experience that you had written about in that article for the Daily Beast, uh, or the excerpt mm -hmm. from your book, right, that was appeared mm -hmm. in the Daily Beast. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. hearing about, you know, the impact that kind of takes on your body, and then to kind of bring it back to like talking about your illness related to food, to be so sick and to have it be directly related to like what you eat and being like eating is not avoidable. It's not like, oh, well, you know, you can't play it's basketball anymore which would be really hurtful to someone who loved to play basketball but like you can't be like you can't ever eat again you have to eat and to like manage that relationship and knowing that it not only like causes you pain or discomfort or embarrassment or whatever like it you're in the hospital like unable to move because of the way your body is reacting to you know your digestive tract and I mean can you just like talk about like I mean, in this article, which I hope, and in your book, which I hope all our listener, listeners read, you describe it in such a candid way. It's also, it's also incredibly painful to realize that someone would have to go through that. But can you just talk to us a little bit about, I guess, like, what did it feel like for you to, like, realize that you were now in the situation where you were so sick? You said that you were preparing for your own death and thinking about who you would, you know, like, leave your life insurance to and your dogs to, like... How how did you not only like deal with that emotionally in the moment, but like what was it like coming out of that then too, back to being a person who didn't die? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the moment, it surprisingly didn't feel scary. It just felt like this is this is what it's come to, and I need to get my house in order, and. I wasn't really scared for myself. I was more afraid of the effect that my dying would have on my family. Um, so I was worried about them being okay. But when you're that sick, and I was on so much medication, including really heavy opiates, um, it just kind of felt like I could fall asleep and not wake up. And like, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think of it beyond that. When I, when I got past that and got out of the hospital, um, then there was this mania that kicked in where it was like, holy shit, I almost died. And now what am I going to do? Because, like, there's this pressure of feeling like, oh, I got a second chance at life and now I have to, like, do something really great with it or whatever. But even in smaller ways, it was like, you know, um, oh, I can, like, I can walk outside and, like, everything is so beautiful and, 
every every bite of food that I took was like the best bite of food that I had ever had because for a long time when I was in the hospital I was under a, a nothing by mouth order so I couldn't even drink water everything came through my IV um, and that I mean there's a lot of stuff that's dehumanizing in the hospital but like not being able to eat is one of the biggest ones because it is just such a I mean, yeah, food is fuel, but it's also like comfort and connection with people. And like when when you're eating meals, you're like reminding yourself that you're a human being who needs this stuff to keep going. And then when you're in the hospital and they order you to not have anything by mouth and you're just like an alien with a, a nutrition drip, you know, and you're like... It just, it feels very much like you're not a person anymore. So far from life. So far from real life. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of that like manic phase when I got out, um, just like wanting to experience everything. And that, that fades, you know, over time, It does. but, but, but you still hold on to like the, the gratitude that you, that you are still here. Totally. You know, we were talking about duality before, and there's just so much duality in everything, right? You were grateful and you were grieving, right? Yeah. And you were fragile and you were strong. I mean, you're just, it's there's so much duality. It's not one thing. You feel so many different feelings at the same time. That was something that um, one of the mental health professionals I talked to in the book described that so well. And that's just that, that grief really reveals to you that you can feel four, five, six, seven things at the same time. Um, I think a lot of people who haven't grieved before think that it's just this one singular feeling of sadness. And it's just so many other things. So many other Um, things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I just think I'm, I'm very curious personally, and like, I'm sure our listeners are as well. Like, how do you kind of, I, I think I'm under, I mean, I understand from my own experiences with grief, how you cope or begin to cope with the loss of a a loved one or a person in your life that was important, but with chronic illness, um, you know, it's a really different thing. And like, Bobby, you know about this because you suffered from ulcerative colitis, a somewhat similar ailment. Um, but like grieving for you, you speak in the book a lot about like the loss of like the grieving for yourself. And like, that's like a, a coping that like is so different because it's not, there's no finish, you know, not that there's ever like a finish line to grieving for a loved one either. But can you just talk to us a little bit about, you know, what is that like? What is that grieving process for yourself been like accepting that this is kind of what your life is like in a way, but still finding a way to thrive and live and, and enjoy and, and be real with like, what's that been like for you? Yeah. Um, well, I think I had to throw out any phases of grief out the window um, because all of those are going to, to come and go throughout my entire life. Um, and usually like the, the way that I feel physically is very intrinsically tied to how I feel 
in terms of grief for myself, for sure. Um, when I'm feeling pretty good and I write, wrote about this in the book, there's definitely like, I slip into denial that, um, oh, I'm always going to feel this way. Like, you know, even though that I know that that isn't how my disease works and that, you know, I'm going to flare up again and remission might not last long and, you know, I can be doing everything right and my disease will still flare up. So, um, any sort of grief model for me just has to be uh, rooted in flexibility and it also has to be um, rooted in knowing that I have a plan should things get bad again. Um, I, I like to remind myself that like I've been through really bad things before and I came out the other side of them and so I try to not uh, catastrophize too much about stuff, which is my natural way of thinking is to always think the worst. Um, but I'll always be, I'll always be grieving like at some level or another, you know, I'll just always, I'll always be thinking about what if this hadn't happened. Um, I'll, I'll never, um, I'll never fully accept that, that I'm, that I'm sick. And I, and I think that that's fine because it leaves room for all of these conversations that I have in my book and that I have with other chronically ill people. And there's no, there's no finish line. There's no acceptance finish line. Like you're just, you're never, you're never going to get to that place. And if that's what your goal is, you're just going to be constantly disappointed. Well, I also hear that you, you've learned to stay in the moment as much as you can. Um, because we, we, I say whenever we go through an emergency, we can't afford to have too much of the past on our plate and we can't afford to have too much of the unknown future on our plate. You know, we really, so being in the moment, you're just dealing with what happens and that's, therefore you're not accepting or not accepting. It's just what's happening right now. Yeah. Which is hard for me because I do spend a lot of time thinking about the past and I do worry a lot about the future, but chronic illness really does force you to be in in the moment because um if you're constantly worrying about what might happen um then you're just making yourself sicker in the moment um and if you're and if you're worried about like something that happened in the past repeating itself again like in a lot of my support groups a lot of people are really worried about like oh well I went out, like I was brave enough to go out to this event and I had an accident and I had to leave. And so they're, they're, um, they've decided that if, the, if they ever try that again, the same thing is going to happen. So there's a lot of those, yeah, a lot of those conversations too. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's an act in um, bravery just every single day. And, yeah, and it really is. It is an act of bread. It's a really beautiful way of putting it. You know, really true. You know, I did. I actually did my master's thesis on the psychological aspects of physical illness. So I've always been very interested in that. And I think one of the things I really appreciated in your book too is when you talked about that common known thing about post-traumatic growth and what we learn out of traumatic experiences. You know, we learn so much about ourselves and and about life and about things that 
we imagine that most people don't really have to spend that much time thinking about. So do you feel that that's, you did speak about it in your book. What are some of the things that you have learned about yourself and about life and about that, that because of the disease, I remember I read a book once, it was called Love Your Disease. Crazy title, but of course you, you can understand what it yeah, means because get it. we, we yeah. get something from it too. Yeah. Um, I mean, getting sick just sort of, um, it just cracked me wide open, really. I, I, I became so much more of a active participant in the world. Um, I found um, people in my community that um, I didn't even know were there before. I feel like uh, radical empathy is basically the driving force in my life now. And um, although my, my experience with chronic illness isn't the same as everyone else's, it, it allows me to connect with other marginalized people and people who have been through deep pain. Um, it also has uh, really um, like charged me up to to fight uh, the injustices of our healthcare system. Yeah, that's so important. Which I, yeah, which I didn't, I didn't really understand until I was smack dab in the middle of it. You know, I was on, I was on my parents' health insurance, and then I had this nice little cushy, Condé Nast insurance, and then I got sick, and then I was, it was just like a free for all. Um, and I ha and I had to, I had to learn about the the ways that our insurance system works. I had to learn about the ways that um, disabled people are just treated so terribly in the system. And of course, you've seen that highlighted with COVID as we talk about the value of disabled lives and of elderly lives. And um, it, 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 um, it just taught me it taught me everything. It revealed everything to me. I feel like, um, of course, I'm still learning a lot, but um, I, 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 this is what I say when people ask me the question, if you could be cured, like, would you trade that for all that you've learned from your illness? And my answer is always no. Of course, I, I wish for a cure because I don't want people who, who, who don't have the disease yet or future humans to have to suffer with the pain and the fear and the uncertainty. Um, but for me, it just, uh, it, it, I wrote about this in the book, like in the strangest way, illness just freed me from so many um, things that I had just been stuffing down in my body for years and years and years and um and I don't feel so beholden to those things anymore yeah. so Tessa at the end of every episode we always ask people the same question and it's just what if you could um after you know knowing what you know and being through this grief experience and whatever kind of place in that you want to 
picture yourself, whether it's after the loss of your father or being diagnosed with Crohn's. Um, if you had one piece of advice for your younger self who is about to embark on this grief journey, like what would, what would that advice be? Mm, it would be that you can't, you can't control it. And the sooner you relinquish some of that desperate need for control, um, the sooner you will start to heal some of those wounds, I think. Rendering, what a pleasure to, to meet you. And I have to say, I read your book from beginning to end. Um, I loved it. Of course, I had a personal connection to it. And so many of the places that you went, I had been to in my life. Deep, that deep, means so much to me. Yeah, deep places. And I love the end where you interviewed other people experiencing chronic yeah. illness. That was wonderful because it's always well, as I a... wanted... I, I, I read... I mean, I've read basically every book about inflammatory bowel disease. And a lot of it is just like... A lot of it is doom and gloom. A lot of it is um, just like, here's what you need to eat. Here's what you don't need to eat. Like, it just wasn't of much value to me. Um, and it was important to me to like, to be honest about, yeah, the disease is can be brutal. Um, but also like, here are all these people in this community that also have found um, these really beautiful moments of joy and I wanted to make sure that that was kind of what the book ended on because I can tell you that I can talk to you about joy all day but like I'm just one person writing this book but if like I have a bunch of people backing me up from the community they're <laughs> also like hey it's true like yeah I, I found joy too um so I hope that like I just imagine someone who's newly diagnosed picking up this book and reading that like yeah it's going to be hard but it's also going to be weirdly beautiful in some ways so it's important to remember it really is there's there's joy kind of hidden you know tucked away under little piles of leaves and hanging from trees and under boxes and right you know it isn't it is actually i call it the string of pearl theory and what i mean by that is that we like to think that life is just a fully constructed, you know, necklace of pearls and that it's just our life is full of joy and happiness, but it isn't. There's a pearl under the couch and there's a pearl under the bush and, <laughs> and it really requires our philosophy, um, the way we view ourselves and the world to string that together. So I'm so glad to hear you found so many pearls of joy in your life and you're a lovely human being. Just yeah, really, it was it's really been such nice a pleasure to talk, to talk to you today. And thank you for being, you know, your ability and your willingness to be so candid about talking about this of it. It really is important for other folks. Like, and I know you know that, but really it just is. And it's so on our, on our vibe. And like, it's just, it's wonderful. I'm so glad we got a chance to connect and thank, thank you so much you. for your time. Good luck Tessa. with the book. February 2nd is two days away. Have Please just remind day. our listeners of the book the release date, and wherever else they can find you, you know, on social media or anything. Sure. So the book is called What Doesn't Kill You, A Life with Chronic Illness, Lessons from a Body in Revolt. It's out on February 2nd, which is very soon. And you can buy it wherever books are sold. I would like to encourage readers to 
avoid buying it on Amazon if at all possible and to order it from your local bookstore, which you can also just do online um, because of COVID. If you don't want to go into the actual shop, there is a website called IndieBound. And if you put in your zip code, it will bring up all your local bookstores and you can order it directly from them that way. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter at Tessa Jean Miller. Um, and I'm very good at responding to DMs and I love hearing from readers. So feel free to reach out to me if you're reading the book. Awesome. Tessa, thank, thank you. you so much. And thank you for sending us thank copies you. of your book. We were thank so, you. it was such a beautiful book and it was so wonderful to read. Thank, thank you. you. And hopefully I'll maybe meet you guys in the, in the after times. Absolutely. We? Yes. We are planning a big <laughs> processing get together in the after times for sure. Yes. Yeah. Sign great. me up. Okay, cool. Great to all meet right. you, Tessa. Sending a big hug to you and all your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> you too. Bye. We'll see you later. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.